Welcome to Creative in Tech. Powered by Reed Speaker. Technology is constantly evolving, and the companies that adapt win. In this podcast, you'll hear from companies and thought leaders across various verticals who blend the art and science in one of the biggest growing spaces in technology, conversational AI. You'll hear how they're creating the touchtone experiences that will define the next generation of customer strategy. Join me, Carrie Roberts, your host for this podcast and the brand evangelist for North America at readspeaker.ai as we explore the intersection of creative and tech. Welcome to the Branding Innovators live video podcast series event coming to you from the Creative and Tech podcast show, which is powered by readspeaker.ai. I'm your host and moderator for this event. My name is Carrie Roberts, and I'm the brand evangelist for North America at readspeaker.ai. We are doing our final discussion in this series. We're talking about how to create an experience online and offline with a brand. And I'm so thrilled to have with me for this conversation the Chief Creative Officer at Rain, Will Hall. Welcome, Will. Hey, Gary. Thanks for having me. I am so excited you're here. You have done so many things and been so creative in your life uh, for a long time and continue. So just personally, I'm curious, what is it about brand and innovation that excites you? Well, yeah. I mean, I think the fact is, you know, I'd like to give a quick anecdote that's sort of related to that. So I, I teach at NYU as well. And one of uh, my students did a really interesting study. They looked at the words that companies use and tried to figure out if you could figure out a sentiment from that. And one of the things they found is that of the Fortune 500 companies, the companies that are the most innovative, they never say the word innovation. And conversely, the brands that say innovation all the time, they're almost always the ones that are struggling to be relevant. And there's this weird sort of inverse relationship of, again, the more you talk about a thing, the less you're doing the thing. And so to your question about why am I excited about it, it's like, that's where real business is happening. It's not talking about it. It's not you know having a slide in a deck that looks good for your boss so you can get a raise and you know not mess up. But it means that we can actually be on the cutting edge of where business is going. And there's never been a more interesting time to be in business. You know, PricewaterhouseCooper came out with a projection that said 15.7 trillion with a T dollars uh, of uh, will be added to the global GDP over the next eight years, and that's the single biggest leap ever, ever, ever in the history of the stock market ever. And you say, well, what's that? Pre- what's that sort of built on? And the answer to that is the emergence of automation, of AI, of voice, of assistive technologies. And so let's say that differently. Anytime you have a shifting technological landscape, it should be a competitive advantage. And so there are people who are leaning in. They're not talking about it. They're being about it. They're going to win. And they're going to win in a profound way because the stakes are higher than they've ever been before. I mean, I could continue on. I'll, gi- I'll, give, you a, I'll, I'll give it a moment to breathe. But you know, COVID has done nothing but accelerate every timeline. You know, 10 years of projections have been telescoped into 10 months. And so all of this stuff together, you're like, why am I excited? Because this is where it's happening. There is no, you used to be a luxury 15 years ago, 10 years ago to have the innovation team. And I've worked with all of them. They always have the weird building over the corner and nobody even knows their <laughs> extension. The, those girls, those guys, uh, that's, not a, that's not a world we can live in anymore. You know, you, it's got to be a seat at the table. It's got to be self-disruptive in a sense and, and really reimagining what a brand is. Um, so I'm very excited about it because it, I think it's the only game in town in a sense. Well, I, I already feel your passion and excitement, which gets me excited. 
And I think you're right. It's not just about talking about something, it's doing about it. And I've been asking the same first question to everyone. So I'm curious your definition. When you think of the word brand, how do you define it? Oh my goodness, Carrie. <laughs> I love these simple questions that like reach down and like, what does God mean? You're like, oh God, you know, like it's, it's everything. It really is. And look, I think what's happened as well over the last 20 years is then there's been this sort of facade of hyper, 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 hyper specialization. But in reality, so in my world, in design, back 50 years ago, there was one word for design. It was called a designer. <laughs> it was called capital D designer. And there's a designer named Massimo Vignelli. And he said famously, if you can design one thing, you can design anything. And the spirit behind that is that there's a depth of interrogation that is required to make anything truly meaningful. To make this pen, as simple as it is, requires understanding supply chain, understanding the environmental impact, understanding how the business works, understanding, understanding, understanding. And so in the particular lies the universal. And I think there's really something true in that. And I think now, you know, we live in a world where it's just gotten so hyper-specialized, where there are UX designers in my weird world of the of the internet, where it's like, yeah, I love UX too. I teach UX at NYU. I helped establish that cur- that entire curriculum. However, comma, the things that we're talking about in the world of design now, they're so small. It's like, you know, a user flow of one app and button states. It's just like, man, that's important. I'm not saying it's not important, but there's orders of magnitude here you really have to think about as a designer. And so the reason I'm sort of conflating the world of UX and the question of what is a brand, it's everything. It's literally everything. Look, I've worked with 23 of the Fortune 100 organizations in various ways through the years. And it's just so funny because I've sat, I mean, in countless of these rooms, you say, well, you know, what's a brand you aspire to be like? And you're going to hear a murderer's row of Nike, Disney, you know, Apple, insert obvious brand and brand here. And what do all of them have in common? A maniacal um, sort of obsession around every single element. Do you know how ridiculous it would be like, why do you think Apple has stores, right? Because it's, it's part of the entire experience. They, they're the ones, by the way, who coined UX, Donald Norman back in 1996 or something like this. It's everything. It's the box, it's the plastic, it's the material, it's the ink, it's the sheen, it's the font, it's the way it's programmed, it's how it makes you feel, it's what it does functionally. It's all of the things. And when you think about all of the things, you know, and the system, that requires a system thinker, not somebody who went and got an MBA. Now, there's anything wrong with having an MBA. Our CA, they're, I'm big fans of MBAs. My point is, it's like, well, a brand manager does X. You know, we make sure that our thing is on voice and on tone and, you know, nothing violates the brand standards manual. It's like, dude, you're operating in like this much of the world right now. You have to build systems. I could continue on this for a minute, but that's, uh, brand is everything. I like well, and I like that you're talking about like the idea of systems as well. And when people say, "Oh, I want to be like Nike or or these larger brands," you know, they have the capacity to do that, and so that's why you're seeing it everywhere, and why they're hitting all those tiny, minute touch points that you you talked about. Um, which brings me to the concept of customer experience. You know, we talk about you know this idea of like we have to improve the customer experience, similar to what you said earlier. You know, let's be innovative. What is your take on how to improve the customer experience? You know, what does that mean? What does that look like, especially in today's day and age? Yeah, and it, it really requires, I think, you know, look, a throwaway word these days is collaboration, but it really is re- required. You know, if, if you want to do something 
bigger than this little thing. You've got to work with people who can do things that you can't do. And I think that that's quietly the, and look, I have a lot of sympathy and and empathy for big orgs. I understand it. None of your incentives are based on you working with people who don't do exactly what you do. I totally get it. It is not in the purview of whoever's running insert brand here, social media team to speak with their shopper data team who talks with their supply chain. Like, why would they need to do that? You know, they would probably get fired, in fact, if they did that because they're not focusing on the task at hand. But the system part of it requires that interdependency. It, it requires you to do that, to build attribution, to understand what happens in the store is the same thing that's happening in social. That's the same thing that's happening with your CRM follow-up and retargeting and all of this stuff. I think what a lot of brands do, and we call it the goldfish problem. So we work with a luxury brand. I, they'll remain nameless for now, but totally heard of them and they're very expensive. <laughs> they're sort of a perennial you know, luxury house you, you've definitely heard of. And we did some pretty deep research there. And one of the things we found, we called it the goldfish problem, because we found that even though this particular brand was heavily skewed in terms of brick and mortar, what we found is that 80% of the people who bought in store started their search online. So let me say that differently. You're one brand, but you know they've, they've already looked you up. They found you. They've looked at your content. They've taken your story. They've found the product that they think that they may want. They've compared it. And now they've gone in store to convert it. So I've already had all these dates with you, so to speak. And now you're acting like we've never met. Oh, well, what are you in the market for? <laughs> uh, it's like, and so I think this sort of, you know, I was on a panel the other day with a, a gentleman from Disney and they've coined a phrase, I don't love this portmanteau, but I think it's reasonable of digital, you know, and I think it's physical digital. I mean, there's a lot of, you know, China calls it offline made online. I mean, there's a lot of versions of it, but the concept is the same as that is one brand and one experience and one, one flow. And so whether somebody starts in store or goes online later or vice versa or any constellation of those, you know, how do you maintain sort of consistency and a flow through time? And my last thought on that is that's one of the reasons that I'm so excited about voice in particular, which we can talk about. Yeah. And I, I want to, again, we're talking again about this blend of online and offline. And we, first of all, it's been around forever in the thought of it, but especially during the pandemic, this became even more prevalent, something we need to talk about. You know, you have, okay, we need to be safe but we're also craving this ability to be in person, to be with people. Can you maybe share some examples either that your organization has done or maybe that you've seen where a brand has done a really great job of blending that mix of online and offline and still creating that branded customer experience? Yeah. I mean, you know, we don't work with them, but I was such a fan of Panera. And the reason why is like Panera, you know, it, it's a good brand, but it's not like, you know, they don't maybe are the first brand that comes to mind of innovation, but they're quietly kind of killing it. They have a really great order app and reorder app and uh, they know their customers pretty well. And the reason this is relevant is, look, what having that system allows you to do besides keeping a relationship going and driving personalization over time, that's all great. And that drives loyalty. That's great. But the other thing it allows you to do is it allows you to pivot and react to changing landscapes. And so, all right, prime example, global pandemic, brick and mortar is gone. Their restaurant isn't open you know, for service. Well, in the matter of a week, they were able to pivot their entire business to be an essential grocer. And you could order groceries through their app. And the groceries were in the Panera brand, and they built recipes that were in line with the Panera brand. And so even though the output was different, the system that they created allowed them to pivot and kind of not miss a beat. And in fact, now post-pandemic, God willing, I mean, we're in post-pandemic, 
that starts to actually open up some really interesting possibilities because of course they're going to continue to do the things they used to do, i.e. place you go to get lunch and that's great. But maybe they've opened up and I can't speak for them. I don't work with them. But like maybe that's opened up an entirely new secondary, you know, DTC model that they maybe would have never thought about. But by building a system, it gives you options. It gives you resilience. It allows you to work with big tech without getting your lunch eaten by big tech. And so, um, you know, I think they're a really good example. And I mean, lots of examples, you know, but uh, the world of finance, I've really been interesting when you look at what's happening in the world of banking, you know, and, and I think Erica, Bank of America's Erica really comes to mind. You know, all the new startups are called unbranched banks. So they don't even have a physical location. And then the ones that do have brick and mortar, they're in decline. I mean, city closed. I, I'm gonna. I'm speaking out of school here. I don't know the exact stat. A lot, <laughs> to use a scientific word, a lot of brick and mortar locations over the pandemic. And they're probably not going to open up again. And so I think that those companies like Bank of America that have a proper assistant at its core, they're going to win. They're totally going to win. And in fact, I think the market is showing that. So lots of examples there. We, we could continue. Yeah, and I, I was going to say, because the Panera Bread one, um, I didn't know that first part about it. But I do know, again, post-pandemic, whatever we want to say we're in right now, um, I have ordered on their app. It's very easy. It works. I mean, that's always a plus. And being able to then, I just go in and it's it's on a shelf with my name on it and I pick it up. And so you have this option that if you're like, I, I want to get food from there, but I don't maybe want to sit there or they've kept it. And I've actually noticed, you know, I don't know if you have around you, that there are a lot of organizations, and I'll speak probably more in the small business restaurant space, that have gone back pre-pandemic. They said, well, this is over, so I don't need to do this anymore. And one specific thing I've, I've run into is, you know, the, the signing for your card, right? That was taken away. We didn't want to touch stuff. It wasn't a problem, but now we have to do it again, which makes no sense. Um, so, you know, what is your thought on that in terms of like the companies that have said, okay, this isn't just a pandemic for six months. The world is changing versus the ones that have said, oh, I'm just going to go back to the way it was. Well, again, all COVID did is it accelerated trend lines. And we were already on aggressive trend lines. And so the idea that it's just going to go back to the way it was before is, is I, I've seen no, I've seen no evidence to suggest that's going to be the case. Uh, you know, and, and I think that one of the things that I'm interested in is like, okay, for example, we work with MasterCard. And when you think about the way that their brand has evolved over the past, God knows how long, right? You used to have a card, it was issued by, let's say, Citibank, and then there was a MasterCard logo on the front. So there was sort of this co-brand, right? And then over time, there was Citibank, and then the MasterCard logo goes on the back. And now over time, there's a Citibank logo, and there is no MasterCard logo. And then all of a sudden, you go to digital wallets, and you don't even know whether you're using a Visa or a whatever. And we actually did some research, and we said, you know, ask some folks, you know, do you, you know what card do you use? And there's this pecking order of attribution, and MasterCard was the last one. You know, it's like, I think I have a MasterCard versus I have a, my Citibank card. This is my SkyMiles card. I think I have a MasterCard. That's a problem. And so when you look at what they've done very bravely under their leadership, and I, I'm such a fan of what they've done, they've created what they call a multi-sensory expression of the brand. And so if you're in New York City and you are in a cab and you pay with MasterCard, you hear their sonic identity. And they're gaining back some of that, that, that sort of that equity uh, that's built over time. And so they're, they're thinking about how their brand tastes. <laughs> they literally made cookies, by the way, which we can, we can talk about that. I, I appreciate the spirit of it, though. This is how we taste. This is how we smell. This is how we speak. This is how we listen. We're anthropomorphizing our brand. And you have to do that as you think about you know, the systems that they're now operating in. It's a messy, messy world now. 
it's fractured. And so therefore, you have to think in systems. And that's interesting that you bring uh, a company like MasterCard up because that has been around for years in terms of a brand. But then you say, okay, they weren't maybe using their brand as much and people weren't really sure if that's the card they were using. So now it became, now we need to be using brand, which is why kind of this whole series came about. You know, a lot of times brand is kind of pushed to the end or outside or the last thing, or it's like, well, it's not really helping me get a sale. So I'll push it out. Again, where does this value of brand come in, in terms of an organization um, in general, do you think? Yeah, you know, there's there's a handful of things that I think brands do that are really important beyond the, let's forget the system part of it, but just like thinking about just like, what is the halo effect of a brand? There's the obvious in that it drives loyalty and preference. I mean, that that is one of the things that a brand can do. Ultimately, I mean, my goodness, I mean, who hasn't written about tribes over the last 20 years of brand tribes and that's a goal? I mean, it's a tire narrative, but there is some truth to it, right? Of course, you want to build fanatics. But by the way, double click on that for a minute. But fanatic, there is no fanatic. If you look at people who, like I've worked with a lot of CPG brands through the years, you know what's considered a heavy household? That's the term they use, heavy household. They bought it twice a year. I mean, does that sound like a fanatic to you? I mean, like that, you know, it's like, we kind of like it sometimes, you know, it's like, anyway, we can put that aside. But I find that to be interesting, but it does build loyalty. It builds preference. Uh, you know, a brand creates an irrational margin. So that gives you more margin, you know, and I think, and I, I'm not, this is not my idea, but it's, but it's true. So I'll share it, which is, that's one of the reasons that Apple is so amazing. They get luxury margins, though they're a hardware provider. That's never happened ever. And so, you know, that's an, un, what should be a commodity is seen as a luxury good. So it gives you margin. Brand gives you that. And the other thing it does is it, it decreases your time. It, it, you know, brand has this compounding effect. It, it decreases your time to market. So for example, uh, we work with a, a luxury. Gosh, how do I even talk about the one other name? A, a luxury real estate company, let's call it. And so that's loosely what they are. So if they put a new property on market, the way that everyone, like if you and I bought a building and then we wanted to market it, and we had to tell people what the building was about, and then find people who'd be most likely to buy this in this region and all that stuff. Every word I just said is costing us money. And never mind the time and the load of the loan that you and I would have on the building while it's not being occupied. I mean, it's a lot of work. But if you can build that brand, and let's say you've built a consistent brand over time, and then you and I opened up the 10th one, we say, more of the same, but better. And here it is. You've, you've, you've had this compound effect. It's faster. We know who the audience is. We know their life cycle. We already know the cost of acquisition. Our load is less, et cetera, et cetera. I don't get on a slight tangent in the world of real estate, but it's, but it's the same, right? It's like, Loyalty, margin, and sort of time to market. Those are very real, tangible things that compound themselves throughout an org. So I do think that's a big part of it. Yes, I 100% agree. Like you said, I think, you know, brand takes a, a long time being consistent and constantly doing it. But then in the long run, like you said, if you're selling a new product, you're opening a new thing, more people are going to flock to it because they've built in association with it. They've heard of it. They like it. They know it. They are, are a part of it. It makes sense. Um, you know, we're talking about again a little bit today, not only about brand, but again, online, offline experiences. Um, you work a lot in the voice technology space with Rain, And you guys are definitely one of the leaders in the space as well in terms of voice agencies. How are you, whether you can talk again internally or just thoughts overall, are you using voice technology to blend the online offline? And where does 
the element of brand fit into voice in terms of a branded voice, a sonic brand, all of that? Yeah. So, you know, voice is, I'm, I'm always a little hesitant. Yes, we're totally a voice company. That is a totally fair thing to say. But it's like, well, what does that really mean? And so it's like voice is like voice without a system is kind of like a keyboard without a computer. It requires actually a lot of under the hood technology to make something simple, meaningful. And so, you know, at Rain, we talk about we build systems, but that doesn't exactly fit on a t-shirt well. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, you know, voice is a gateway to assistive AI. And that's more the way that we see it. And the reason that's relevant is one of the ways that we look when, we, when a company comes in to, um, to start working with us, one of the first places we look for where voice might fit in is to find what we call assistive moments. Moments where users want to know, go, buy, or do. Those four little words. And those four little words, actually, again, back to this idea of compounding effect, they're profound. And so something that voice has done that's really kind of interesting is that voice drives loyalty. I'll give you a concrete example. Work we've done with Starbucks. We've worked with them for several years uh, over the past few years. We're not currently working with them, but we have historically for, for many years. And we started to voice enable their ecosystem. One of those best in class apps. I mean, there's more payments transacted through that app than all of Apple Pay. I mean, they, they do their job really, really well. But what we started to build out was an NLP. So that's nerd speak for natural language processing, which means if I say I want a triple grande macchiato in a venti cup, it knows what I meant. Triple, three shots, grande, medium size, and a venti cup. Oh, you want the big one? Reconcile to me and my account and wherever I am in the world. Great. Sounds good. But when you think about it, as good as their app is, triple grande macchiato venti cup, button, 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 that's four points of friction there versus being able to speak and get. And never mind, back to this idea of a relationship over time, what we found is that, you know what 70% of people do is they actually just order the same thing every time. So you probably don't even have to order triple grande macchiato in a venti cup or whatever the pretentious order is. Just say, oh, am I regular? Okay, that's good. Well, what's even further than that? What if I just anticipated it? It's like, want your regular and ask and you have to opt out, which a lot of people actually do. So the reason this is all relevant is by owning the simple little assistive moment of I want to buy coffee. <laughs> I have removed all these barriers of friction and we found that people who shop with voice purchase 2.7 times more than non-voice shoppers. And this is a good example of digital experiences driving in-store frequency, driving loyalty, driving personalization. And this is one of these truths of voice. You know, I think one of the things that happens with new technologies, and I'm guilty of it as well, as we try to cram the old into the new. We try to explain what came before or what's now with what's came before. I mean, think about the first generation. I always use this example because it's, a, it's right. The very first generation of an iPhone used a design language that's called skeuomorphic, which is a pretentious term that just means it's made to look like the real thing. So like the YouTube icon looked like a 1950s TV. A TV in your pocket. Get it? A notepad was a yellow legal notepad. It was as literal as it could possibly be because it was so much newness in that first device. But who would have ever thought that, well, my goodness, this is a totally different thing. You know, it, this is not a, a TV in your pocket. It means that you have geodata. This is a gateway to a thin layer of technology. This is a fundamentally other thing. But it took us, I would say, five or 10 years, and we're still figuring it out, how to figure out what this thing actually is. And, and voice is very similar in that way. You know, we, we, we think about it through the lens of, you know, early KPIs, people come to us like, well, what's the, how long has someone spent in a voice experience? That's a bad KPI usually. Usually I want you out of my voice experience. <laughs> I want you just to get what you want. And so maybe there's new ways of thinking. But loyalty is one of voice's fastballs for sure. 
Yeah, I, I well, I like that you're bringing that KPI too, because I think a lot of times in general, when it comes to brand, when it comes to new technology, we're not always looking at the right KPIs. And so that can seem like something's not working, but that's not always correct because we need to find the right measurements. So when you are creating these experiences, um, again, where does the brand fit in? So like when you're doing something with Starbucks, did you choose a specific voice or a specific sound or music or were there things to kind of enhance that digital online or interactive experience that could kind of continue when you went into the actual physical space? Um, yeah, I mean, for sure a little bit. Uh, I think that we stopped short of uh, of having like, you know, uh, you know, a new voice that comes in when you go in the store, it's the same voice you heard. We didn't go that far. But our central idea really is that the most powerful thing you can do as a brand is, is, is foster personalization. And, you know, and if that's true, and maybe that's not true, maybe I need to interrogate that a little bit, but I think that's the spirit of truth. You know, did we drive personalization with this assistant in ways that they hadn't before? Absolutely. Um, you know, and I, I think that's right. Yes, we think about Sonic, of course. Yes, of course. Every single time. And same with MasterCard, right? Every time you use MasterCard, you hear that sound. It reinforces. And it's an emotional timber that we want you align with your brand. I mean, these are, these are familiar muscles to a lot of brands. Um, so, of course, we do that. Um, but, you know, again, I think that there's new metrics for brands as these uh, technologies emerge. I'll give you one more example that's related to that. You know, in the case of voice specifically, we love this quote that uh, the actor, Daniel Day-Lewis, he said that when he starts thinking about a character, he doesn't think about how they look. He said he starts with their voice. And he said that voice is the thumbprint of the soul. I mean, that makes a really good Hallmark card, but I also think he's right. And here's why I say that. Voice is qualitatively a different thing than social, than a web, than, than something else. And so... What we find is that voice data is qualitatively different. So for example, in hospitality, we do a lot of work in hospitality, a ton of it. And if you do, we, we do what's called conversation mining. We listen to what people say. And we listen to the front desk, for example. And you know what the first word out of people's mouths when they call the front desk is? I'm sorry to bother you, bud. I hate to bother you, bud. And I'm like, whoa, you know, if, you, or if, you're, if you're in therapy and you said the word hate... That's a loaded word. And you compare that with hospitality, those two should never go together. And so, you know, these are very sophisticated brands. They have focus groups, they have real, you know, they, they use McKinsey and Gartner and all the usual suspects to get insights. But the insights that voice uncovered as plainly as me talking to you now, we're like, guess what? They hate asking for the Wi-Fi. Maybe we made them not ask for the Wi-Fi. What, what about that? <laughs> you know? And so by using these new technologies and the unique affordances that they give you, it allows you to leverage them in ways that you probably wouldn't have expected otherwise. And I think, again, I think one of the things, sorry, Carrie, to double click on that, but one of the reasons it's so important to not see innovation as a noun, but rather a verb, something you live and breathe and do and not talk about necessarily, is that proper innovation allows you to ask better questions. That's half the game. You know, at Rain, we made the very first voice experience on Amazon. It's not even published anymore. And so the cynic would say, oh, waste of time. You guys, da, 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 da. you're going to be out of business if you think that way. <laughs> That's, that is an archaic way. What we realized, it was with Campbell's. And what we realized with voice is that, guess what? Your entire brand equity is based on a visual equity. What happens when you remove the red and white can? What do you have left? That's a really profound question. And it helped them pivot. I don't know where they are now because we don't work with them. But we started thinking about how can we re-ask better questions of what our organization is? Maybe it's brand as a service. What are they looking for us from, from a functional perspective? How might we productize that? 
Here's questions I never hear, for example, CPG brands ask that every tech company asks. How can we create network effects? You know, how can we have access to capital to grow X, Y, or Z? You know, these are questions that a lot of brands don't ask because they don't think they're in that business. Our core belief is that every company is a tech company in disguise, whether you realize it or not. And tech companies don't sell cat food. They build systems that sell cat food. And so, you know, innovation is so critical because it allows you to ask better questions. So yeah, I think you have to have a living brand. Yes. Well, I just love too that you're just bringing, again, there's this creative side, but there is this technical side and this system sides and asking the better questions to get what you need, um, which I like that you're, you're bringing here. Um, I want to kind of do both sides. So I want to start with the people who are brick and mortar and actually not only big brands, but maybe, you know, smaller businesses as well. I think about this every time I walk through my town, um, that, are brick and mortar. They're paying for this space. That's how they've gotten their business. They realize maybe they need to do something digital or online, but they don't know what it is. They don't know how. They don't have the resources. I mean, obviously, the first thing I think is, how can we use uh, voice or things like that when we don't have enough people to work, you know, Um, or that want to work, whatever it is. So for someone that has a brick and mortar business, small or large organization, what is your suggestion on either types of things they should consider or questions they should ask in ways that they can start to bring their brand online as well? Yeah, I mean, that's a, it's definitely a, uh, that's a great question. And it's a tough question, right? I'm not saying that's easy. And, and budget is going to be part of that. And we know a lot of brands are, are struggling right now. And so there's not a, a simple fix. But I would say that I wouldn't allow the tech to be the barrier. And what I mean by that is, you know, look, we're at Rain. We just received a Series A investment from Stanley Ventures, uh, Stanley Black & Decker's investment arm. We're making a product. We can get into that sometime if you want. Here's my point. If you're making a product, the last thing you want to do is start coding out and building some hugely complicated thing. You want to make sure that what you're doing is true. And so the first place we started for six months, I didn't code anything. We're with paper, literal paper prototyping and rapid prototyping. And so figuring out what's true is super, 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 super important. And so back to the actual question, the answer might be to start building a thing, but it's probably, let me figure out what my actual, who am I talking to? What are those personas? What do they actually want from us? What are they actually looking for? You know, one of the things that we at Rain do, this is just an old school innovation tactic, but it's so helpful. We look for what are called compensatory behaviors, which is yet another pretentious term, which means uh, behavior that someone's compensating for a gap in the market. And it, it, you don't need any tech to do that. And it tells you explicitly what they want. I'll give you an example just to illustrate it. So let's say if you and I were asked to come up with a new food product, a new snack product. Well, the first thing I would do would not be go start making snacks and figure out what what's on trend. I mean, maybe that'd be part of it. But I'd way rather watch and see how are people snacking? And what are those compensatory behaviors that people are doing? And one of the things in this particular case, there's a very real trend of especially women taking cut meats and rolling them up and eating them as snacks in the middle of the day. It's not <laughs> meant to be a snack. But you realize like that's a compensatory behavior. You're compensating for the fact there's not a low-fat, high-protein snack that's on the go. And, you know, okay, well, that's the beginnings of something. And you can start to say, well, why is that? And why is that? And why is that? And you can get to something that's true. And then the tech gets take care, takes care of itself. The good news about all this technology is that though, yes, of course, you can make wildly sophisticated ecosystems like we do with Nike and Starbucks and, oh, my God, I can never do that. But a lot of it is right off the shelf. If you ask the right question, the tech t- tends not to be the barrier. The question tends to be the barrier. 
the right answer tends to be the better. Mm, yeah, no, I I like that a lot. It's like it's, we're kind of taking step five before going through step one and really kind of researching and observing to decide what the thing is versus kind of being persuaded to just use this new technology. I like that a lot. Yeah, and you know, Carrie, I'm on this television show on CBS called America by Design. And I've had a real privilege to get to travel around the U.S. over the past couple of years and speak with all kinds of innovators. And I see people take products to market. And some are amazing and I'm inspired by it. Oh my gosh, I, I, I wish I could do that. But some aren't. And the thing that I've seen, that, and I've started to note common DNA of those that succeed and those that don't. And I can tell you right now, the ones that are failing are those that have preconceived notions about what the thing should be. Almost always. If somebody shows me a napkin sketch of their first idea and the product looks just like that napkin sketch, you're probably screwed because it means that you force fit this like preconceived idea and you didn't allow the process to inform what it should be. You show somebody that has been iterative and learned and failed fast and made quick prototypes and they're, you know, again, it's hard to succeed anywhere, but you know, they're going to be more likely to come up with something compelling because it's built on truth, you know? Yeah, no, I, I agree. And I love how you're saying that. I think that's so important. On the other side, when you have, and this is, again, not for everyone, but if you're an organization that's primarily online, you're built online, is there value in doing something offline? And what should that be? Because some people might say, well, I don't want to pay a monthly rental fee or for a space. Like I'm making all this money online. Why would I do something like that? Are there other options to, again, kind of blend something that's more online into an offline experience as well? Yeah, I have a, a couple of examples of that. Uh, I would say one, uh, I don't know if you're familiar with the brand Harry's, the uh, razor company. We, we used to work with them uh, a few years ago. And um, I don't know where they are now. Again, I don't work with them anymore, so I can't speak for them. But one of the things that they and like a Warby Parker did with physical retail, you say, well, you guys are crushing it. You're DTC. Why would you ever have the overhead? Okay, fair enough. But there is margin. A, there is margin to be had in brick and mortar. You know, there is, there is a reason that the shelves at Target are full. The people do buy stuff at Target last time I checked. So there is a reason at times to be in, in physical stores. A, but B, because I think those, those particular cases, they're so smart, they need to listen. You, you get this data, very real. It's like, what, you know, why don't you buy, buy, buy glasses online? I mean, you know, in the case of Warby Parker, because it's such a hassle to return. Well, we'll give you a boxing, throw it in, it's prepackaged, and you don't even have to go to the mailbox. I mean, you know, it's just, we'll, we'll remove those barriers. Well, I, I, you know, order five, order 10, you know, and all of these things that are in their product were built on brick and mortar. I know for a fact that actually they start well. I think I know for a fact we should validate this. So I, I, again, I'm not, I don't work with Warby Parker, so I may be wrong on this. But the spirit of truth is they started with a physical store to get insights. It's like we want to find what's real and what's true. And then again, the tech is, yeah, there are tech platforms all day long. We can scale that all day long. We know how to do that. Um, and so I think there's a real value from an insights perspective. The other thing that I think, though, might be more profound, I don't know if you've used an Amazon Go store. Have you used one of those yet? I haven't yet, no. You know, it's just funny because I think that, you know, one of the beautiful things that's happened, I think, in this moment in time, as we talked about earlier with the PricewaterhouseCooper thing, it's like, dude, these things are happening. And they're happening quickly. And so like overnight, an entire industry changes. And I mean, in my little world of voice, when you say, there's that word again, voice, system AI, bigger topic. But, um, you know, when you think about something like, what has Alexa done really well for several years? Well, it's always been able to do things like the weather. Okay, fine. 
Well, what the data has shown is that people use Alexa to ask the weather. They don't go to the app. They stop going to the app. And guess what? They certainly don't wait for Al Roker to come on the TV unless you just want to see Al Roker. It does that really well, and it takes over. And you're seeing the same thing in brick and mortar. So for example, in those ghost stores, you don't have to pay. You literally walk in, you grab what's on the shelf, and you walk out. And it's tied to your digital account in the case of, of Amazon, and you're off and on your way. And every time I go and I'm like, this is an indictment on every line I ever have to sit in ever. Do you know how archaic it is to be in a Target or anywhere on planet Earth and be like, why am I waiting for a line? You know, you go to lunch in New York City for any one of the billion of places you go to, like, this is absurd. I should, there's what I want. I have money I want to give you. And you put all of these barriers that aren't necessary. And so when you see these glimpses of the future, you're like, whoever builds that's going to win. And they're going to win all of it. They're going to win all of it. If there was that beside a, a you know, a 7-Eleven to use the, I don't know how we got in convenience stores, but I would never go into a 7-Eleven ever, 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 because why would you? The F word of 2021 is friction. And if you can remove that, you build loyalty. You direct, And by loyalty, a byproduct of loyalty is personalization. And a byproduct of personalization is brand affinity. And a byproduct of that, and a byproduct of that, and a byproduct of that, and it compounds over time. And then the next thing you know, you're a juggernaut of a brand. But it's built on these atomic habits. Yes, I want to like high five you over the <laughs> over the video chat. I absolutely love this. Um, for brands or for anyone listening or watching that is thinking about, okay, I hear you. I want to start asking better questions. Do you have any like ways creatively to think outside the box or to kind of get to the right type of questions that you should be asking that you can kind of lead people with? Yeah, you know, as a really just decent place to start is every brand has a consumer journey. Every brand, at least most brands have a deck, they have their brand pyramid, with their emotional qualities, their functional qualities, etc. You know that stuff, that's great. And you have a journey of your personas. Very useful to, to really start to reimagine what, what that journey is and find no go by do moments along that journey. Hmm. You know, how is it top of funnel? What do they want to know, go buy and do? What is it mid funnel when they're comparing? What is it when they're converting and then reengaging? It's a good little exercise. It's not going to solve all your problems, but you can start to say, well, what is it they want to do with us here? They want to compare. How are they comparing now? You know, what behaviors are they doing? Is that a friction point? Are we owning that? You know, 10 more seconds on this carry and then I'll let, let it go. But it's amazing too, because I think as you start to really be obsessive about your brand, means you're obsessive about a system, which means you're obsessive about that journey. And I think so often brands, they're obsessive, but they're only obsessive on, over this part. And so, you know, a certain part of it. And what happens is you think about what's happened in the CPG space. Their lunch is getting eaten over the last 10 years because they've done all this work, amazing brands that have built on, you know, decades, bordering on a century sometimes of consumer research to build a product that has data and insights baked into it. And then we hand it over to Amazon and then they decompose it and then they make their Amazon's basics version of it. And then they commodify your space and then they undercut you by 10% and then you go away. And it's because of this sort of deference to, along that journey. So I think the more you can try and own that path, in my opinion, that's the key to success. And why do I think that? At Apple, Disney, uh, et cetera, they, they can, they're obsessive about that entire journey. It would never occur to Disney that you have to go to Walmart to buy the tickets. I'm just being hyperbolic for a minute, right? I mean, it's like, it would, why would you ever do that? It needs to be a magical experience. So we need to own that app. And Nike, they have the spe the speakers app. Yes, you can buy Foot Locker, but you know we want to drive that personalization. We want 
your awareness in the ad, uh, you know, and being retargeted and then converting on our platforms. The more you can do that, the better. And so anyway, easier said than done, fully acknowledged, but being obsessive, I think helps. Yeah, no, I, I think that's great. I think we, like you said, it's, it's more about thinking much more bigger picture um, instead of just kind of honing in on one area and one thing and continuing to kind of expand. I, I love all of this. If people want to learn more about anything we spoke about, they want to connect, where's the best place to do that? Yeah, you can reach out to us on our uh, website, uh, rain.agency, clunky URL, but good people, <laughs> www.rain.agency. Uh, and we'll reach out to you. Perfect. Well, I thank you so much, Will, for being here and for finishing out our event with so much insight. I greatly appreciate it. Yeah, Carrie, thank you so much. I'll talk to you soon. Yes. And if you are watching and listening, don't forget to subscribe to our Read Speaker AI YouTube channel for all of our previous videos, as well as our podcast, Creative and Tech, wherever you listen to podcasts. Thank you for listening to Creative and Tech. Want to learn more about conversational AI, text-to-speech, or be notified of our upcoming episodes and events? Learn more at readspeaker.ai.